again and welcome to Doctor Who and the Episodes of Death, the podcast where we take a stand and defend our favourite show's most picked on stories because damn it, that's what the Doctor would do. I'm your host, Lucas Testro. Now last episode, in the course of discussing Ark of Infinity, my guest David Ross and I were raving about another fifth Doctor on Gallifrey story, Big Finish's Time in Office. So I'm thrilled to follow up that conversation by welcoming my guest for this episode, the writer of Time in Office, amongst many other things, it's Mr. Eddie Robson. Hi, Eddie. Hiya. Thanks for doing the show. No, no, thanks for having me on. Now, before we get too lost in Doctor Who, I want to congratulate you on Adulting, which is another audio uh, drama that you've done. It's The Guardian's new podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that stars Pearl Mackey, a name I'm sure I've heard somewhere before. <laughs> I thought it was... Absolutely fantastic, and uh, and it comes in very handy, sort of uh, twelve to fifteen minute episodes. So I, I managed to tear through it in my lunch hour, and then just my commute home, and I had a ripping time. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, they were quite specific about that. They wanted um, they wanted it to be episodic, but they, you know, the budget was for an hour. Um, but it it did kind of mean that. Um, because they were like, we want a cliffhanger at the end of every episode, and obviously having you know experience of writing lots of Doctor Who stuff uh, was helpful in that. But with a cliffhanger every ten minutes, it did kind of. I found that it escalated very quickly. So without giving anything away for anyone who hasn't heard it, it kind of starts quite uh, low key and real world, and it does uh, it goes to another place quite quickly. But the uh, the um, it I was amazed the the cast that we got. Um, it was produced by uh, Simon Barnard, who's a uh, uh, may, name may be familiar from other um, Doctor Who adjacent audio things. Um, and uh, he was saying, oh, as as you're writing, because we were quite close to the deadline, give me um, casting suggestions so that we can uh, go off and uh, do the casting. So I kept saying, obviously, you know, not this person, but someone like this. And he would just go off and check their agent and they come back and go, yeah, yep, yeah, they'll do it. So It's the famous Time Bandit script description of Agamemnon, uh, an actor of similar stature but cheaper than Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, yeah, and it was, um, and, yeah, the idea of, of, of getting Pearl, we were struggling a bit for that part and then to suddenly, um, I, it was actually, I think I was just on Twitter and I just saw that she was, um, we were only about a week out from recording and I saw on Twitter that she'd just come back from a convention. I thought, oh, well, she's obviously not like off filming or in the middle of a play or anything. Maybe we could get her. And yeah, did we just put in an inquiry? One thing you actually find, which uh, doing big finish stuff has taught me as well, is that um, quite often actors will do something if they've got nothing else on because they'd rather get out of the house and do some work and you know rather than and you know get a free lunch or whatever rather than. Um, Rather just sit around, you know, not doing anything. Okay. So for those who missed our discussion last episode, can you tease what the story is for Time in Office? Uh, well, yeah, it was, uh, it was a funny one because it was quite a specific brief um, that was handed by Alan Barnes saying, do a story where, um, they kind of, because they kind of never really wrap up, at the end of the five Doctors, uh, the Doctor heads off, you know, they think he's going to be president but he's actually skipping out on it and the next we hear of this is at the start of trial of a time lord when he just goes ah i'm still the president and they just go ah no you're not um and alan had no idea of maybe doing a story to kind of fill that to explore what you know how it, how it would have gone if he had gone back so we've sort of done a bit where he uh, him and tegan are actually on their way it's set in the last five minutes of Frontios, so they are um, <laughs> they're on their they're on their way back from dropping off the Gravis, um, and they get snared up, which actually tied in nicely with the whole Doctor being a bit concerned in Frontios that the Time Lords are going to notice that he's gone too far, um, and they notice him and they bring him back and say, right, you've got to do the job, and it's kind of ended up being it was originally going to be a subscriber special that was going to be an hour but it ended up being a 
um, Alan's idea was making it a, a, a sort of one of those um, four one-parters. So it kind of became like a sitcom set on a political sitcom set on Gallifrey, like Yes Minister or The Thick of It. Um, so I did four individual plots, uh, which do kind of build up into something at the end. And yeah, it's just it was just meant to be kind of uh, a funny satire. I think it was one thing that was a bit odd though was that I wrote it before uh, the election of Donald Trump, and then it was recorded afterwards. And I did tone down a few bits because I'd done, uh, I'd kind of characterised the Doctor as being a bit of a disruptive maverick who's kind of come in from outside politics. Clean the swamp. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I was kind of, when I when I looked, when I read it again, but just before it went to studio, I kind of went, oh, that doesn't seem as funny now, actually. <laughs> it sort of seemed appropriate when I wrote it, but then I thought, oh, this just reads a bit Trumpish. So I, I toned a few bits of that down. But there is definitely that element of it that he's kind of just coming in to this hidebound uh, system that's um, not been changed for you know millennia, and he suddenly starts saying, "Well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that?" I have a suspicion we'll be talking uh, more a bit later about comedy and and uh, comedic mm. principles and techniques. But one of the things I most uh, love about Time in Office, without giving too much away, is that the first two cliffhangers basically uh, are all about Tegan getting airs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah, and that was it was kind of that was because I had her in the story. It was like, what what's Tegan going to going to be doing? And um, I just it's uh, making her, she becomes kind of uh, the um, actually no, I'm not sure I should do that. No, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, people should go. People should go get. It, but yeah. I, I'll say like you know the 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 Doctor and Tegan's relationship is a, a very interesting one through all of the twists and turns on on uh, on the television version and. I think this one is my favourite uh, story for their relationship from, from okay, all the various formats. Yeah. It was, it was, this is it because of it. And actually this is, uh, you know, uh, this was kind of the thing of it being set right uh, in that weird little gap at the end of Frontios was that it was an opportunity to get those two on their own, which you never normally get, which is, it sounds like a sort of overly involved continuity thing, but that's the real reason for it is let's get those two characters on their own. And it actually uh, enabled you to me to sort of dig down into that a bit. It, they're, they're quite a fun uh, combo when they don't have um, Nissa or Turlo to kind of break the circuit. That that relationship also, you know, once you're working in a sort of sitcom context, it, you know, takes on a whole mm. other um, sort of identity and presents all sorts of other gifts, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Now, this is a question I asked John Dorney when he was on the show. Do you remember the moment you first typed the character name The Doctor and then had to write a line of dialogue for him professionally? Um, I think so, yeah, yeah, because I do remember, um, yeah, it was a, bi a big deal when I wrote Memory Lane. And I did, in fact, the thing I remember uh, not so much was writing the character name, but um, uh, starting a script with, you know, interior TARDIS. And what was the feeling at that moment? Was it elation or terror? It was, no, it was, it was really exciting, you know. But it's. I think Paul Connell talked about this, is that, like, you kind of... Um, it's, it's it's different kind of steps because I'd written other Doctor Who stuff before, I'd written short stories and things. So it's not like I'd never written that before, but it's kind of, it is a bit different knowing that, uh, you know, knowing that one of the actors, you know, in this case, Paul McGann is actually going to be in there and doing it. And it's going to be, you, that certain things are going to be done to kind of make, give it that feel like, you know, you know, you know, it's going to, this TARDIS scene is going to have that background hum on it or, and things. But it's got one of the, um, it's really funny, but like how these things are sort of big finish has made all these things more accessible, and also the TV show coming back is that things that when I was younger seemed really distant and would have seemed impossible then actually kind of seem easier to do now. Like when I did um, uh, the short trip for um, Carolyn Ford recently. Um, you know, when I was reading Doctor Who magazine in the late 80s, early 90s, and you were reading about the Hartnell stuff, it all seemed an incredibly, impossibly long time ago. Um, and so to find yourself actually 30 years later writing things that uh, are actually tapping into that and are kind of recreating that, um, it's sort of the past weirdly seems closer than it did back then. Speaking of the past seeming closer than it did back then, what story have you chosen for us to explore this month? Uh, well, I've gone for uh, The Gunfighters. I am so excited that we've finally gotten here. Uh, so without further ado, uh, would you please, Eddie, 
hit that big red button over there to pull up the matrix data file for the gunfighters. Okay. When I said I needed you. It's the 30th of April, 1966. Sitting at number one on the music charts is Dusty Springfield with You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. And generations of Doctor Who fans are about to take those words to heart as the Gunfighters episode one goes to air. It's a first Doctor adventure starring William Hartnell as the Doctor, William Herndall as Ike Clanton, Anthony Jacobs as Doc Holliday, John Alderson as Wyatt Earp, and Peter Purvis and Jackie Lane as companions Stephen and Dodo. The Gunfighters was written by Donald Cotton, directed by Doctor Who's original producer for an hour, Rex Tucker, script edited by Jerry Davis and produced by Innes Lloyd, though it's really a remnant from the previous John Wiles, Donald Tosh era of the show. Despite what some textbooks have claimed, The Gunfighters is not Doctor Who's lowest rating story, but it did score the series' lowest ever appreciation rating of 30%, with respondents calling it third-rate storytelling, hackneyed, ridiculous, and dull. And they weren't alone. Sidney Newman, head of drama at the BBC and co-creator of Doctor Who, criticised The Gunfighters as too silly, and famously the milestone coffee table book Doctor Who A Celebration called it bad and ugly, branding it the worst Doctor Who story ever, cementing fan opinion for decades to come. The story has some notable defenders though. The Discontinuity Guide raves that with William Hartnell, Purvis and Anthony Jacobs in amazing form and such a great script, this is a comic masterpiece winning you over with its sheer charm. And the TARDIS Editorum calls it one of Hartnell's best stories by arguably the funniest writer to write for Doctor Who until Douglas Adams wanders by. But in DWM's 50th anniversary poll, fans made their side clear in this critical shootout, ranking the story 202 out of 241. So, is The Gunfighters really a fatal misfire, or has history got it wrong? Eddie, kick us off by giving us a quick recap of the plot. Okay, so the TARDIS lands in Tombstone, Arizona in 1881. The Doctor has toothache in one of the kind of most bizarre um reprisals of a cliffhanger that we've seen because uh, at the pre at the end of the previous story the celestial toy maker we've uh, we've seen the doctor bite down on a sweet uh, and then grimace in pain uh, and then uh, uh, drop the sweets to the floor with a, a, a dramatic flourish of music and it turns out he's just got toothache uh, so he needs his tooth removed uh, and as luck would have it uh, there is uh, a dentist in the town of tombstone uh, but as luck would not have it it is uh, doc holiday the uh, uh, the famous gunfighter. So, um, well, he goes off to try and get his tooth fixed. Um, Stephen and Dodo uh, uh, sort of play it at being uh, um, backdrop characters in a in a western, um, but accidentally become embroiled in the uh, the feud between the Clanton brothers and Doc Holliday, uh, and the whole thing just sort of swirls from there. Really, is sort of just uh, the chaos of uh, of mix-up of identity between uh, the Doctor and Doc Holliday um, and trying to avoid getting caught up in the uh, in the famous gunfight at the OK Corral themselves. And, you know, when you say um, uh, Stephen and Dodo, you know, kind of play at being Wild West characters, I think that's one of the really striking things about this story is the way that it plays with its place as a story itself, plays with the notion of story and legend versus truth. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. As you say, Stephen and Dodo are thrilled um, to be in the Wild West as a storybook world, and they dress in these preposterous imagined versions <laughs> of Western figures, which you know embarrasses the Doctor. Mm. And then you have the the Clantons have heard stories of Doc Holliday, and then Doc Holliday gives them his own sort of storybook version of himself, which is the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. What I find really interesting about this story is that it, um, and I find generally interesting about the third season, it's a very weird and off-beam season, but there's so many interesting things about it. Um, and it, the gunfighter sort of underlines how the TARDIS doesn't just travel in time and space, it also travels between different genres. And it really feels like, uh, in this story in particular, they've not really travelled into the Wild West, they've travelled into an idea of the Wild West. In, in its own way, it's sort of as abstract as the Celestial Toymaker was, because um, they don't really treat it like a real place. I mean, Donald Cotton obviously knew the real history of the gunfight of the OK Corral and consciously chose to uh, use the the more legend version, the the, the, the one that's come down, been handed down from films and, uh, and things. 
Um, and I just find that, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, thing to do. And and to have, as you say, the characters, uh, our regular characters actually kind of participate in that. Uh, and they turn up and they're really excited to be there. And they do treat it like a theme park. And one thing that's quite funny is that they, they do that at first and then it starts to become clear to them that they could die here. You know, I mean, Stephen nearly gets uh, lynched. It's Westworld before Westworld. Yeah, no, it is, which is uh, um, kind of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's and the fact that it's played up as a comedy as well just kind of underlines that. The fact that it's not just... Because um, there's a lot of Doctor Who stories which uh, import... Uh, tropes from other from other genres and other types of storytelling and by making this a comedy that uh, it becomes more overt because the conventions are being played with inherently because it's a comedy they're they're, they're playing things up and underlining the fact that you know this isn't how it really was Um, and yeah I think that's yeah that's what makes it really interesting and it's in many ways um, more interesting than some of the other historicals I mean I like all the historicals but this one does um, particularly unusual things with it um, which is a shame you know it's it kind of has to carry the weight for um, the historicals being phased out it's sort of it's as you say it's always um, it was always cited as being a terrible story but it's always the one that they alight on when, uh, the, the, you know, fan critics always alight on when they say, oh, the historicals weren't popular and this is why they went out. It's always the gunfighters that gets pointed to. Um, but I think that's a bit unfair because, I mean, partly it's it's because Innes Lloyd appears when he does and he doesn't really like the historicals. And that's and this is the one he's got. As you say, it's the gunfighter sort of falls between the cracks of the two different production teams because, it's as you said, it's commissioned under the previous regime. The previous regime hadn't really worked out because it's, 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 I mean, you really see in this period that Doctor Who, as we know, is a very hard show to make. And no one really realised how hard it was until Verity Lambert left because she was so good at it. Um, and, yeah, the whole uh, John Wells and Donald Tosh era hasn't really worked out. Innes Lloyd comes in uh, and he does sort of steady the ship to some extent. But really, they never I don't think they ever really get back on track until Barry Letts comes in. It's always, there's always problems. But Innes Lloyd kind of, uh, and Jerry Davis, it's kind of, this is the last story they've got to make under the old regime, and they don't like it. Uh, so they kind of disown it in retrospect. And um, and obviously, Wiles and Tosh have never, have, have always been a bit, uh, they, they've never been that happy with, uh, they, they clearly weren't that happy with what happened on Doctor Who and never spoke of it that fondly. So it always lacked someone to stick up for it uh, in amongst all the, uh, yeah, all the the changing of the guard. It's such an odd era of the show, the Wiles and Tosh mm. era, because one of the things that struck me watching uh, the documentary on the, the Gunfighters DVD, which you know doesn't even manage to be warrant a specific special on the Gunfighters, but we get one on the yeah. sort of conclusion of this era – and it, it it struck me, you know, the Wiles Tosh era never got a chance to even actually be an era in the sense that no, no, it's yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's uh, because basically by the time that they've by the time they've worked through all the stuff that they've been left by the previous production team uh, and are getting onto their own scripts, they're already out of the door. So like the Wiles and Tosh era lasts for about you know it lasts for about a week in the end so about. Um, the, it really, it's, it's kind of uh, yeah, because it's it's the arc. I think is the first one that they actually get the feet under the table for, and uh, Tosh has already gone by the time the arc happens. Yeah. So they're, they're yeah, they but they, they never really get their their stamp on the show. And then in amongst it, you hear these stories of like the Celestial Toy Maker being completely rewritten by Jerry Davis after there had been well, it was a rewrite in itself, wasn't it? Uh, by um, yeah, Donald yeah. Tosh. So yeah, you you watch this. Th- thing and you you just uh, you, I was looking at the list of stories that fell during that era today and you really scratch your head trying to work out what you can ever be sure of has their kind of authorial voice in it yeah yeah definitely um and this I think one thing that's interesting with the gunfighters is that um they uh, Donald Tosh um Donald Tosh, I think fundamentally struggles with uh how his version of Doctor Who is going to work there's some there's some things that kind of pop in that uh, that you can see. I mean, he's got like um, there's an odd religious element to 
to Donald Tosh's stuff, which you can kind of see coming through in the massacre and the kind of invisible aliens of uh, of the Ark and um, and also oh and the and worshiping idols in the Ark, and then you've got this godlike figure in the celestial toy maker. So there's kind of that going on, but his approach to the historical stories. He never quite sort of nailed how he thought they should work. And I think in his head, they don't really work because he, um, his, a big problem he had, but he cited later with the massacre was that he said um, he, it really stuck in his craw to show people like Catherine de Medici doing things they didn't do. So in the massacre, he, he keeps all the historically real characters at arm's length from the Doctor and Stephen, which causes a huge problem because uh, it may, makes them really uninvolved in the story. I mean, I really like the massacre, but it's got great tranches of secondary characters doing stuff. But then you, um, then you go to the gunfighters, uh, and these, which um, Tosh appears to have commissioned because he really liked the Myth Makers, and you think, well, that's kind of the opposite because you're really um, playing around with, you know, you're showing people like Doc Holliday doing loads of stuff they didn't do. I mean, there's um, loads of it, it, it really warps the gunfight round to, you know, as, as we say, the version of myth rather than the uh, what actually happened. Yeah, and they kind of maybe get away, they maybe find a solution to that dilemma uh, Donald Tosh has, or, or Donald Cotton finds a solution to that dilemma Donald Tosh has in this notion of, uh, as we were discussing earlier, this, this sort of um, ambiguity between legend and truth. Yeah, sort of putting the whole thing uh, in inverted commas effectively. So it's like, look, this isn't really what happened. So you don't have that kind of angst of, oh, are we trying to, are we showing kids like something that was historically not real? It's like you kind of, you don't have to worry about it so much. Yeah, for sure. Like I just finished today reading um, the target novelization of The Mythmakers after um, mm. watching Gunfighters, uh, which uh, if we hadn't said it, is Donald Cotton that also wrote that. That was his first uh, story from the, for the series. And it's fascinating there to see, you know, he writes that whole novel from the perspective of Homer. Mm. Uh, and so, like, the whole thing becomes a very metafictional kind of experience of Homer acknowledging, you know, what the, the story in itself is playing between our, our con- the, the sort of storytelling conventions which have affected our perceptions of what that kind of era is versus reality. And then in the in the novelization, you have Homer himself sort of saying, well, you know, obviously I edit some of this sort of stuff out and, you know, I take some poetic license. And, and so uh, Cotton manages to kind of have his cake and eat it too. And, and maybe it sort of mm. just sits implied in the gunfighters of, well, who knows who whose version this is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking about that sort of tension between you know what's the real version of history and the the fiction. I think another kind of really fascinating level they bring to it in the Gunfighters is, as you say, Cotton is kind of writing the the legend version of the West, but then the way they produced it, the production designer leaned the other way into the the very kind of grotty real version of yeah, what the yeah. West might have looked like. And I think this becomes a fabulous sort of setting to like create that tension that, as you say, is the direction the story is going to take the characters in that what seems like a, a, a play becomes darker and darker. Yeah, and actually one thing I want to stick up for here is uh, I, I, I'm sure I've seen people occasionally slate, slate the gunfighters for uh, being cheap looking. Um, and I never really understood that because, I mean, yeah, if you're comparing it to a fistful of dollars, uh, then, yeah, it is cheap looking. Uh, but then it's Doctor Who. I mean, if you compare, um, uh, you know, the moon base to You Only Live Twice, the moon base <laughs> is rather cheap looking. You know, it's it's you're not really comparing like for like. And I think if you look at the other stories around it, The Gunfight is a very successful production, I think. It's, it's certainly more successful than The Celestial Toymaker, which... Um, looks rather shabby uh, and uh, and obviously had to be you know obviously it's a result of uh, having to tighten their belts because they overspent on the arc um but i think barry newbury's uh design is is very good but also um and this is the kind of thing where in in some ways it's irrelevant because you know it's only makes sense in the in the context of the time um but how barry newbury manages to fit all this this uh this whole western village set into the studio space they have. It's worth watching the DVD with the uh, production subtitles on because it explains the layout of the studio as it goes round and how they had to change it each week. 
And actually, when you when you start looking at how much space they get, it's extraordinary how much you manage to fit in. I mean, that Western uh, the, the the saloon bar set is actually really small, um, but he manages to juggle the space in such a way that it's got all the space they need, but it also enables them to have this lovely flow of movement where quite often in uh, you know in studio bound Doctor Who they would have to you know you'd have all the sets set up in different ways and you'd have to um, uh, pretend that there was a flow of movement from one to the other so someone walks out of a door in one bit but it doesn't really lead to where it we think it leads to but in a lot of bits of the gunfighters uh, places do lead to where they appear that, to lead to so you walk out of the bar and you are actually in the street outside and then you walk along and Doc Holliday's uh, dental saloon is actually down the end there um, and it does. I think it really helps sell the whole thing as a real place. There's a there's a lovely shot in I think um, uh, is it episode two or three where uh, where they're actually looking out the window at Stephen being carried off to be lynched. Um, and it's a really nice. It's one of the things where you you know you wouldn't as I say it's sort of meaningless now because these days you would just go and shoot like something like a town called Mercy. They um, uh, you know they obviously just went to a place in Spain and they did it. You know you can get any kind of shot you want. But the fact that you just couldn't get, it was really hard to get this kind of effective movement and these kind of shots in the studio uh, is a testament to just how how well made it is. Um, And I think it stands up quite well when you compare it to um, the other Western series that proliferated on uh, TV at the time that were imported from America. I think it stands up pretty well. And also, I think it's it's worth celebrating as well, just the fact that, as you said, Rex Tucker, who was, um, you know, caretaker producer effectively of doctor who for a, a while before verity lambert came aboard it's it's kind of nice to have this one example of his actual work on the show and that it's so good because he's you can see what a good director he was um i mean one thing i really like about it is that he uh he uses one extra camera uh, at the top of a pole uh in the studio which is a very rare device for doctor who at the time but you get all these brilliant high angled shots uh, coming down that uh, that again just give the whole thing a sense of space i love all, all the shots going down into the bar i think are really effective um such as the one where the 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 shot the one where charlie gets shot i think is really beautifully done there's so many beautiful shots there and you know when you said before like if you compare it to uh, you know a fistful of dollars mm. maybe it doesn't stack up but but yeah for what they're doing i think it's startling and um both in the sense of as you say those high overhead shots that tucker gets but also so often and particularly when he's out in the street looking along the street he gets the camera really low to the ground and so both mm. of those things uh, uh, naturally lead to kind of quite iconic um, stature yeah, being yeah. given to the characters and it's quite stunning. And I, I think as well, I really admire it's, it's, it's a story that is so f- surprising and so constantly challenges our expectations of what Doctor Who should be, I think. And mm. I love the kind of bravura with which they embrace that, like right from the opening shot, which I think is startling that it opens from under a cart which seems yeah. quite confined. And so you're sort of sitting there going, oh God, we're going to do Doctor Who's going to try to do a Western in the studio and they've got no money. And then of course, next thing you know, horses go riding through frame. Somehow they've yeah. gotten horses into the studio and, and you know, it cranes up and it's, it's, you know, and it's like, oh no, we can absolutely do this. And it's just yeah. boggling. Yeah. yeah and, again, and again, these are the sort of things that are just for, for TV nowadays is just part of the course. It's just how you do it. But if you look at it in context, I think it, it's worth appreciating just what a difficult job they pull off with this. It's very good. It's one after another. There's another shot that I really love that I guess it's probably in episode one where so Seth Harper, who was in with the Clanton gang, has come to the the Doc Holliday's dental studio and dental clinic, I guess it is, not a studio, yeah. and is uh, questioning the doctor who he thinks is Doc Holliday. And Doc Holliday is in the next room. And uh, Tucker does this fantastic push in on Doc Holliday listening in on Seth Harper questioning the doctor in the room behind in this beautifully composed split frame where they use the edge of the door to divide the, mm. the frame of the screen in half and to play out all of this depth. Um, and it's such yeah. a visual way to communicate this, this act of listening in and, and holiday 
starting to work out how he can manipulate this situation to his advantage. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 a re- it's a reason to be grateful that these episodes actually exist, and we don't just have to put up the sound recordings because um, a lot of the stuff in the story you could appreciate on a sound recording, but stuff like that you just you you really wouldn't get a sense of of uh, of of all these lovely flourishes that Rex Tucker puts in, which are, as we say, quite unusual for the time. And, and let alone, like, we're, we're talking about comparing it to other westerns of the time. What we haven't mentioned is by the time we get to episode four, it basically just becomes a full-on western. You, you, you mentioned how the characters sort yeah. of, our, um, our ongoing characters fall out of the story, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. But on the upside, there's a, there's a gunfight that is staged that is, um, quite remarkable, and then the other flourishes happening around that. From like, there's a wonderful staging of a shot where Doc Holliday and the two Erps um, each shoot Ike Clanton, who's up on a stairway, and they shoot him one after another, going right to left across mm. frame, which is yeah. uh, beautiful. And then it ends on this wonderfully composed slow pan across the bodies of the Clantons to end on the boots and the guns of the three winners of the shootout. Yeah, yeah, which, and like, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of, it, without focusing on their faces, it's a really interesting thing to do and and to go, um, yeah, to, to sort of, um, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to sort of consider what it means. It's like you don't get to see their reaction. You don't get to see how they feel about it. You kind of just, you infer it, you know. It's, you don't get to find out whether it's, triumphant or whether it's um or whether they're kind of there's some regret about what they've been forced to do it's it's it's, yeah it's really fascinating or also maybe it's like you know uh they've been characters who have sort of they've been the ones nominally on the doctor's side uh, although um doc holiday as we said is sort of playing his own game but you know they're kind of the characters who we have enjoyed our time with uh, so maybe as part of this swing of genre from comedy to to drama and and the horror of mm. of you know murder, um, that choice to not show our their faces and just leave them their three people with guns who just killed a bunch of people, um, is mm. another way to to distance us from that and make us reflect on it more as just an act of violence. Yeah, no, it's interesting as well because because uh, Cotton does something really similar in the Myth Makers in terms of you know three and a half episodes of of japes uh, and then suddenly something really brutal happens and you suddenly go oh yeah history yeah <laughs> it's kind of nasty. Let's talk more about Cotton because he's a kind of I, I'm um completely fascinated with him at the moment. I've always loved the Gunfighters. And as I said, going off the back of this, started to go, you know, just reread the Myth Makers for the first time since I was a kid. And there is no way, if you haven't read the Myth Makers for a while out there, people, go dig it out of your boxes and give it a reread because I there's no way I would have got most of what was happening as an eight-year-old. It is such a sophisticated book. Um, he's He's just a wonderfully talented writer. And here in The Gunfighters, this is just such a smart and funny script. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because again, with you know, it's a, it's a script that ends up unloved by the production team that makes it, and in fact, Tucker apparently didn't really like it either. But it's kind of funny that they they kind of they got this script in and went, well, what do we do with it? And uh, they actually took the uh, remarkable decision to actually play up the comedy, which is sort of strange because you think, well, that's surely what you didn't like about it, but. Uh, it works in its favour, you know. Luckily, luckily they did because I mean, actually, if they tried to tone it down, I don't think it would have worked at all. It just would have been um, four rather unremarkable episodes. Completely, because it's as you say, it's a comedy right down to its structure. It's a comedy from the setup. They're not involved because of missing fluid links or companions in peril. They're involved because the Doctor has a toothache. It's continually driven by like the comedic trope of mistaken identity. Um, yes, and yeah. farce. Yeah, yeah. And to state the obvious, it's just, it's got so many cracking lines of dialogue. Mm. Do you have any favourites from the story? Uh, well, actually, funnily enough, um, a, lot of the, a lot of my favourite bits, although I do really like the script, I, I, I think um, uh, the Doctor's line of uh, people keep giving me guns, I do wish they wouldn't, it sticks out. But actually, quite a lot of the things I think are really funny in it uh, are, are just the bits of business that were actually uh, came up in rehearsals, where... Um, which again is funny because this is a, a story that the regular cast always kind of dismissed and said, especially Peter Purvis, who um, who didn't have uh, fun doing it. And apparently, this was uh, part of this was down to the fact that Rex Tucker um, 
uh, focus. He'd cast quite a lot of actors in the guest roles who he'd worked with quite a lot and knew really well. And so uh, the the regulars felt a little bit frozen out because they they weren't kind of in that club. But for all that, it, there's there's loads of really funny little bits. Like I I, I was gonna say yeah, the um I think actually my favourite line in the whole thing is is Stephen saying let's hope the piano knows it, which I think is uh, <laughs> is a fantastic gag. It's um yeah no it's like uh, it always reminds me of that Tom Waits song the piano has been drinking, not me. <laughs> um, but the uh, but yeah no the bits in the, the the little bits that they worked out that uh, uh, Hartnell's um, Mister Werp makes me laugh every single time. In fact, just thinking about it just makes me laugh. And again, it's this weirdly meta moment for Doctor Who because we're so used to you know the the little Billy fluffs, yeah. which you might at first encounter with Mister Werp think that's what it is and then it turns out nope it's not it's a it's yeah, an actual doing bit. It, doing it every single time <laughs> yeah um but also i um uh watching it again i would forgotten about the little bit where um when stephen's given him the gun uh in when he's in the prison cell and um uh i, I nearly called him warp again there and when white up comes in <laughs> I and think the we doctor's should. just <laughs> and the doctor's just twirling the gun around his finger delightedly and he says oh can you do that and it's, and it's just again this is just a bit that they just came up with in rehearsals but it's it's um i always like those bits where hartnell gets to kind of show uh to, to to kind of show that side of his performance because um it doesn't always come up in doctor who but he's such a good comic actor yeah i completely agree it's so um it's so underrated his comedic skills and that particular moment is just so effortlessly delivered you, every time yeah. I watch it, I, I still, you know, you think, was that written at all? Or did he just do it in yeah. that moment? Because it feels like if somebody told me that was completely improvised, it was another one of his, uh, like, Feast of Stephen <laughs> decision to turn to Cameron and yeah. wish everyone a Merry Christmas, I would 100% believe them. But it's beautiful because of the because of the gravity of the situation, the fact that, like, the sheriff's just come to find him in the cell playing with a gun, plus the incongruity in the first place of the Doctor having a gun because he doesn't normally have one. Um the fact that he's sort of taking this childlike delight in being able to play with it, um, and then he just hands it over, just makes it. It's it, it just kind of it's it would be funny in any context, but in the particular context of of that scene, it just it's it's a brilliant moment. And it's such an interesting story for the Doctor because, as you say, as it's a comedy, it's all all of the characters, but particularly the Doctor is slightly different from what we're used to seeing him as. He's slightly it's a slightly broader de- depiction. Um, but at the same time, like uh, thinking about like it's so delightful, the doctor's cowardice about going to the dentist. Um, in that, you know, this is why he's come here. But then, like the moment he gets to Doc Holiday's clinic, and there's the there's the giant tooth as he sign out the front, <laughs> and and uh, you know the doctor goes to chicken out. He sort of blanches at that moment, and then we have that amazing double take that he does when he hears his Doc Holiday's first ever patient. <laughs> I mean, he seems it's it's interesting this because he seems oddly human in this story. It's maybe the last time the doctor is plausibly human in in the show because. Um, I, I can't think of another occasion when he's really, when medical issues come up for the doctor, something as mundane as uh, as a tooth. Um, yeah, I can't offhand think of yeah. that happening again. And it does feel like it belongs to that early years of the show. Yeah, it's like the next version is just the fact that certain doctors wear glasses, which I always, apart yeah. from Bill Hart, not like it being an older doctor, I guess you don't question it, but from Davison on, or when, when David Tennant first did it, that threw me so much until, like, uh, much later I was realising, oh, hang on, yeah, of course, Peter Peter Davison was using them um, way yeah. back then. But I always find that a kind of odd um, thing. Yeah. But the thing that I like about it, when you say, you know, so human, it manages that that, that whole uh, cowardice about going to the dentist. Um, they managed to achieve that, I think, without selling the doctor out because it's such a relatable thing that people can have you can be any kind of person and you could be the bravest person ever but you can still be very scared about going to the dentist and so it manages to give us comedy but while also playing it in a way that actually is so relatable it demands our affection for him yeah no it does um but it's also it's uh, the fact that he's he arrives at such a mundane reason it's sort of the um it, it does feel like the last the last time we see that version of the character where um they just turn up and get embroiled in something. Um, it does feel like uh, once um, Lloyd and Davis put their stamp on the show, 
it generally feels like the Doctor turns up places looking for adventure uh, and looking for problems to solve. Uh, and so this is sort of the last glimpse of that sort of more innocent, I guess, version of the show, where um, where he's just, you know, he just potters about and stuff happens, uh, which particularly you always get in the historicals as well, because um, you don't tend to get the kind of da- dastardly plots to stop and things like that. It's usually just a case of them landing in some history Uh, they get mixed up in it and they just kind of have to get out alive. Mm. There's two other comedy highlights I want to mention before we move on from that uh, topic is um, speaking about Peter Purvis uh, always being somewhat ashamed about um, this story. And I think part of it also is uh, that he felt ridiculous in the costume, he said. Yes. But but like he is on such fine form in this story Mm. And there's one of these moments which um, will be another uh, of the things they've discovered in rehearsal that you were talking about, uh, which is when he's forced to sing that song. Um, And it's really the high point of the song for me uh, is this moment when Stephen has to sing it for his life and it changes his shape again because he's so full of pratfalls all episode. But I don't think there's much funnier in Doctor Who ever than Stephen's double take as he turns around and like he's just really getting into the song and he turns around yeah. mid, mid-verse and finds himself staring straight down the barrel of a gun and he, he tries yeah. to keep calm and it's totally unsuccessful. Yeah, but he doesn't miss a beat in the song no. as well. It's just, he does carry straight on. But there's this weird head jerk back that he does. <laughs> yeah. And then he gets slightly more emphatic in his <laughs> singing. You can feel the adrenaline starting to pump. Yeah. Can we talk about, actually, there's one other quicker observation the Doctor apparently has a collection of guns. When Stephen first comes out in the oh, costume yeah. and guns, he says, be careful with it. That's my favourite collection. Yeah. No, is it, is, it, is it a collection of guns or is it just a collection of Western memorabilia? I don't know. It's, it sounds it sounds really odd. Is it a collection of vaudeville cowboy costumes? Yeah. I mean, that's something to consider. Hartnell's swishing around on his board days in the TARDIS in, uh, <laughs> in some Western outfit. Uh, yeah. It's actually it's interesting because the... Um, because we haven't seen in this at this point in in the show we haven't seen much of the interior of the TARDIS for a while I don't think offhand I don't think we've seen deep into the TARDIS since um since the chase at this point and so suddenly getting this reference to all the stuff being in there uh does feel a bit jarring but yeah you do sort of wonder where they are and whether it saying it's a collection makes it sound like he's got a little museum out the back where he's got like you know here's here's some weapons i've collected from from my travels in the universe now we've we've talked about hartnell we've talked about peter purvis there's there's one last person uh who i think we have to talk about when we talk about this story uh which is dodo who is surely like the gunfighters of doctor who companions um yeah yeah i mean it's it's she does it, it, you're right she is sort of the gunfighters of doctor who companions because she um she gets lost between the cracks as well because she's uh introduced by the previous production team and then immediately the new production team don't want her and it's kind of weird because they they do she is obviously introduced to be a a, a modern woman i mean they they famously considered having uh, Anne Chaplet from uh, The Massacre to uh, as, as a companion and then changed their mind at the last minute and went, no, let's go for a, a modern young woman. And she is a modern young woman, uh, but they don't kind of... I think the problem is they never quite ground her and they replace her with another modern young woman in Polly. But with Polly, they, they very uh, deliberately show her in context and you understand who she is and where she comes from much better. But she's actually not a very different character from Dodo. She just sort of performs the same role. But yeah, Dodo sort of never quite has that mooring. I mean, you get the um, there's this sort of the, the 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 odd wandering of her accent in the arc, where it feels like she hasn't been given much guidance on whether she's meant to be from Manchester, where Jackie Lane uh, is from, uh, and or from London, where she's picked up in the TARDIS. So she kind of wanders between the two, and uh, because hardly any of us episodes actually exist it sort of um yeah she sort of gets a bit forgotten about no one no one really was and actually uh, she's also like one of the very 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 few uh companions who's never come back to do any for big finish as well um so she sort of remains a bit of an enigma but i think this story she's sort of used in a bit of a varying way in the arc but i think in this story she's actually really good and she's very she does get to be really funny i i particularly like the scene where she holds up Doc Holliday 
in the uh, in their in their room at the hotel. It's the best scene in episode three. Yeah, uh, and the uh, I love the bit where you know uh, the the when he uh, when he points out that she's aiming it in the wrong place and she apologizes, which, which I think she delivers brilliantly. Um, and then the bit where when he finally gives in. Um, uh, and her sort of relief. I, I, I just, she just she plays it very winningly because uh, you you really she sells the idea that um, she really is completely out of her depth doing this, and and the fact that uh, the way that um, she kind of almost collapses at the end when Doc reveals that he had a gun the whole time and he would have just shot her. It's a wonderful bit of scripting and performed just as beautifully in that it gives her. There's a real arc of um what she's going through there in that you know as you say the fact that she kind of faints when she's you know finally gets to hand over the gun and and finds out he could have shot her the whole time in in other circumstances that could be sort of selling out a companion but it's really lovely and relatable in this particularly because the scene starts with this fantastic mix of bravery and smarts from her so the whole scene for people who have forgotten is because doc holiday has taken her away from the town and promised he was going to take her back to tombstone so she could uh, rejoin the doctor and then doc holiday's trying to back out of his promise um and so she pulls the gun on him and to demand he take her back and he tries to call her bluff by saying he can't take her back if he's dead and she says straight back that that's why she's planning to shoot him in the arm. <laughs> and I think it's just such a fantastic foundation for that scene because it gives her so much strength. It gives them the liberty to play with how she reacts later. Yeah. And she And she also just has such a lovely, I think, buoyant enthusiasm the whole way through. Like the fact when she's you know, thrown into this role to be the pianist and she says she'll give it a bash and yeah. Um, yeah, lovely. My most important question to you is, do you think, at least in this story, Dodo and Stephen are an item? Uh, that's actually an interesting question. I've not thought of that before. Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting one because they do sort of, um, yeah, they do sort of. The, the one thing that always put this in mind from the first time I saw it was that there's just something in the kind of very offhanded way Stephen spins her around in the alleyway in their first scene that just seems so kind of f- familiar and and intimate. And that's the thing that always made me think that. But then, like, soon after, she declares him to be smashing, which, again, on its own could be anything. But then there's the, also then the casual way he wraps his arm around her after they leave the doctor at the dental surgery. Yeah. And then when she's sent up to her room while Stephen has to stay in the saloon to play piano for Kate, the proper singer, I feel like there's kind of a note of jealousy in the way she wishes him fun, which, you know, maybe is just that she doesn't want to be out of the action. But when you add it to all these other things, I wonder whether they're playing something a little more. That's true. I mean, there is that because there's definitely a sense that um, something that gets a little bit lost, actually, because they swap roles uh, with the... um piano playing and the singing it was meant to be um dodo who was singing and Stephen playing the piano but jackie lane couldn't sing so they swapped it around and there was going to be a bit more of a play of uh, of jealousy between um dodo and kate because dodo kind of becomes the center of attention in the room so they were going to play that a bit more and it does i think if they had played that a bit more you maybe you would feel more that there was there was a kind of uh, jostling for Stephen's affections Okay, time's running on. We should get to some of our hard questions. There's a lot of things that uh, we both clearly enjoy, but there are some things that I think we have to talk about here. And the top one will not be a shock, the song. We have to talk about the song. So I would, I will defend the song. Actually, I think the uh, I, I really like the song. I mean, I it's it's my view that uh, that all Doctor Who stories involving Linda Barron are top draw. <laughs> uh, but this is. Um, it immediately tells you that this is going to be something a bit different. I think it does that very effectively. Um, it's a device that we, I'm always interested in seeing devices that we don't normally see in Doctor Who, and this certainly counts as that. I mean, the, the, there isn't really anything else like it. But actually, one thing I really like about it is, um, which again, this was weirdly uh, Rex Tucker's invention, was um, that uh, figuring that by halfway through the story, you were going to be getting a bit bored of hearing this ballad over and over again. Um, and I think his idea of, of rewriting it, the verses, to actually start telling the story, um, I I really like. And it kind of creates this sense of, it does kind of, it underlines the whole thing of like everything that's happening passing into myth, that it's already kind of becoming this sort of popular song. 
Yeah, and it sort of it takes on the role of the Greek chorus, is what yeah. I thought. Yeah, uh, no, no, it definitely does. It definitely does, and it's um, yeah, it's sort of because it becomes like narration, which again is something that we don't normally see in Doctor Who that we had, um, don't think have been done since Marco Polo at this point. And yeah, it's um, so yeah, I I would I would always defend it. I think yes, yeah, I'm fine with it, and it's um, also the it's the um, amazing versatility of Tristram Carey who who did the music for this, but who also famously did stuff like the music concrete in in the daleks it's kind of staggering that yeah the same guy could could write those two different pieces of music Mm. now the clantons a lot has been said about the bad accents of the clantons but uh i think the the late great shane rimmer as seth harper does a fantastic job grounding it although weirdly he's the first one they choose to kill off uh gone before the end of episode two i don't know why they didn't arrange that casting slightly differently yeah and well so you've got him dying off then and then uh i think the other one who uh manages to do a, a good accent is probably um uh, david graham his his accent's quite good and he gets killed in part three so yeah they, they do they do pick off the uh, the ones who do the best accents earlier but maybe the bigger issue is that the clantons are kind of a void um personality wise um you know, can a story really work when its antagonists have such little presence yeah they are sort of reduced a bit to comedic tropes you don't really um want to I guess I guess what part of it is what they want is really quite small and petty. They just kind of want revenge on Doc Holliday, um, and that is and yeah, I, I accept that is kind of a, a stumbling block for the story because um, what is there to care about that much? Where uh, you know they're, they're they're not even really that menacing, really. They they kind of yeah. they have this one specific thing they want to do, um, and whether or not they achieve it probably isn't really that important in the scheme of things yeah and i think maybe it works because they're more just like the threat they're almost like the um i don't know the 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 i was gonna say action of fate that's not the right word but but for the first three quarters of the story it's really doc holiday that's the antagonist rather than them in that it's his machinations that are putting our main characters in danger um, and he's such a great anti-hero with Charm to Burn. So m- maybe that's another reason why we never get thrown that much by the fact that they're kind of also rams. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because um, that's what's, as an audience, that's what we care about, I think, is is what's going to happen to the Doctor and co. And so, yeah, it's 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 what he's doing that is driving uh, the their situation. Um so I think, yeah, so I don't think it doesn't necessarily matter though. They are kind of, um, yeah, I mean, it's it sort of in Doctor Who terms, they, they may as well just be the kind of generic, the Clantons, I mean, may as well just be the kind of, you know, generic foot soldiers who um, who are just there to wave guns. Mm. Now, speaking of the, the Doctor and the companions are the ones that we really care about, we probably have to end where you almost started up, um, observing that the our main characters uh, get completely marginalised um, mm. by the end. They're totally removed from the story other than Dodo has a, a, a rather nice moment early in the shootout where she sort of comes and gets involved in, uh, I think it's when Johnny Ringo takes her hostage and and Doc Holliday um, sort of saves her. But I think the Doctor and Stephen aren't even in Tombstone at the time it happens. No. So does it make the ending feel a little empty that you know most of our main characters are neither at risk nor play any part in the story's climax it does a bit i mean i think one thing that is a bit of an issue is that um when it gets towards the end you do start to think well what is the doctor actually what are his aims here what are the stakes as far as the doctor is concerned because he seems to be trying to stop the gunfight happening by de-escalating the situation uh when he must know it will happen um because you know that's that's the way the historical stories are set up I mean, it's it's partly, as I say, it's partly an issue with the historical stories generally, uh, which is, I think, is the real reason why they got phased out is because of this difficulty of um, really involving the characters in the story, because quite often they do just end up being travelogues where the Doctor and co are in danger and have to try and get out of it. Um, and there are a limited number of ways of doing it, which is basically about changing history. So the Aztecs works differently. The Time Meddler works differently. The Mythmakers finds this great solution yes. to it in that it separates the Doctor from the companions on either side of the conflict. And both of their survivals seem ultimately involved in outthinking the other in terms of whether yeah. the, the Trojan horse will work or not. 
yeah so there are a few ways of, of doing it that make it work but i think you see you know you, as I said you see this in the massacre as well that um that that it becomes just about them avoiding the massacre really in the end um so yeah i think the gunfighters could have done it a bit better if the you know if the doctor and if the doctor Stephen and dodo were actually kind of in town when the gunfight was happening and were having to kind of get out of it, it what it needs is them trying to get out of town i guess doesn't it i think it probably needs needs something like that where just a bit more threat for them mm. personally and i think yeah that probably is that probably is where it falls down i think um and so you know there are effective things in the end and i think you know there's because we've managed to invest a bit in in some of the secondary characters uh it does the, the stakes are still there and there is you do have some investment in the outcome but it does yeah it definitely does feel odd that they are so uninvolved and that um nobody addressed this it does it does slightly um speak to the production team uh not being that interested in the serial and the fact that you know we know that they if they'd had another script ready they would have made that instead but they didn't so they had to make this one um but you do feel like uh yeah, it could have just done with with Jerry Davis just looking at that last episode and just going, actually, can we just like you know put the Doctor and Stephen and Dodo there and just have them running around in the town at the end and just trying to get out of it? I don't know. Maybe there's a logistical reason because obviously the whole gunfight is on film and um, maybe uh, you know maybe the cast couldn't get uh, wouldn't have been able to do the filming. I don't know, but it does. Yeah, it does feel a bit odd. In a way, it's almost. I wonder if the cha- the the problems start from it's the whole second half of the story. Once the 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 comedy it, it starts to shift gears out of that comedy, um, maybe they just needed to do a little more work to try to sort out how that drama would would work. Because for for me, that's also a problem that as we move into episode three, there's fewer attempts at comedy. Some of those fall flat. Like I think the Clantons in their par downing shots of alcohol rapid fire through their conversation doesn't really no. work in the way that some of the earlier stuff does. So all of these things are dropping out of the story. But for me, there's not much story to replace the laughs. And, you know, there's a couple of sad deaths mm. that are quite nice. But, you know, it just feels a bit empty at that point. It's even more empty if, you know, I don't know whether you wouldn't have noticed this watching it weekly. But when you get to episode four and it just completely undoes so much of what episode three does in that, you know, um, you know, Doc Holliday, Dodo, Stephen and Johnny Ringo all leave town in episode three just to turn around and come straight back again. And yeah, we spend all no, this- it's a, a bit of a classic. Um, you get a lot of four part Doctor Who stories is a kind of episode three story loop where, you know, you've got a natural three part story. Uh, and then you have to kind of bung in another bit of story, which doesn't really <laughs> affect anything yeah. just to kind of get to episode four. There's a long, proud history of these back and forths. We, I was going to say we don't have a jail cell, but we actually do have a jail cell as well. Yeah. But um, I think the one that really stands out even more than that kind of, uh, you know, Doctor Who tradition of that is the Johnny Ringo character who we spend all of episode three establishing as being this big threat. And then he's killed off almost immediately <laughs> in the gunfight. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, they even they even call the third episode Johnny Ringo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so context is a really interesting thing for this story. Like the you know Doctor Who celebrations role in in you know making people take for granted that this was bad when most people hadn't seen it forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually have I have in front of me the first issue of Doctor Who magazine I bought, issue one hundred and fifty, which had uh, the season survey results. Um, this is, you know, I'm sorry, I was lapping all this stuff up because, you know, this is my first real source of information about Doctor Who. And in the season poll results, which came in in this issue, it said, The Wooden Spoon Award this year goes to The Happiness Patrol by Graham Curry, a story you liked or loathed. Uh, many said it, it was an excellent satire on Margaret Thatcher in today's society. Others said it was the lowest moment in the show's history since the gunfighters, brackets, 1966. <laughs> so this was impressed on me right from, you know, my earliest thing of you know knowing about the history of doctor who it was impressed on me as this terrible story uh the you know the notorious worst ever story and i didn't see it for several years after that and it was kind of i don't know by the time i saw it i was a student and uh, i was kind of ripe for uh some kind of kicking against received opinion um but i uh, i did genuinely yeah i just genuinely loved it when i actually finally managed to get get hold of a copy I also wonder, uh, this is true for a lot of the black and white era, which I love, um, but I think particularly true of 
um, the gunfighters, how much is also about the way in which you're watching it. Um, you know, they were they were written to be watched one half hour every week, mm. and in the era of VHS and DVD how many people are watching and judging the gunfighters as something they sit down and try to watch in one sitting Yeah. Um, where, you know, everything from the pace, but particularly the song, if people, you know, thinking about it going crazy from the song, yeah. that's a completely different environment in which to, uh, to be, be trying to get through it. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And it's, uh, yeah, and it, no, it doesn't do these things. It doesn't necessarily do these stories any favors. And it's particularly the sixties ones where, they were actually produced as discrete things as well. You know, it's, it's every episode is its own production. You know, you've got none of that recording scenes out of sequence. You know, it's, it's every episode is made and paced and uh, produced to be 25 minutes of television. Uh, and um, I do think, yeah, and I do think it, it, a lot of them work better that way. I often find myself watching them that way these days because I, um, these days, if I have time to watch something, that's an hour long i'll watch something that's an hour long so i i, I watch doctor who when i've got 25 minutes spare and yeah a lot of these stories it does transform how you see them definitely and i'll be curious to see how it's viewed over the next couple of years because i i feel like there had been a shift in perception of the story in the last 10 or 15 years maybe mm. where it did seem to be a story that people were starting to argue for and defend a bit more and I was very curious um, when Doctor Who on Twitch happened last year where, you know, we had all of these people watching live and just watching one episode after another. And mm. and from the bits I saw of comments as the Gunfighters was going out, that did not go over well, perhaps unsurprisingly, in that yeah. context. So I wonder if the Gunfighters is about to sink back down to the bottom in fan estimation, particularly mm. in maybe the younger fans who were discovering those older stories for the first time through Doctor Who on Twitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. It is, it, it, it's going to suit some stories more than others. But and it's, there is something quite uh, appealing about binging that way. But I, when I saw the Twitch lineup, I looked at one day, I looked and it was like, the Web Planet, the Space Museum, and the Chase was back to back one night, and I was like, no, no one should attempt that. That's like, you know, <laughs> you know that's uh, a, a dose that strong could kill an inexperienced user. You know, if you're gonna, <laughs> you drink plenty of water. Don't try to drive. Make sure you know you've got a friend with you to check up that you're okay. No, it's it's um it's it's a bit yeah. So no, it, it, definitely, I would I would definitely advise um revisiting the gunfights and try it, you know, yeah, take it a bit more steady. <laughs> uh, well, listeners, you know where I stand and where Eddie stand uh, on the gunfighters, but have we convinced you that uh, the gunfighters deserves a far better reputation? You can vote in our listener poll, which will go live a few days after this drops over on Twitter at Eps of Death. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. This no, was thank you. Uh, a real pleasure. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. Where can people follow you? Oh, you can follow me at Eddie Robson on Twitter. Uh, yeah. And anything coming out soon we should be keeping our eyes out for? Yeah, I've got a few things on the way. I mean, uh, in July uh, 2019, as we're talking now, I've got um, uh, another Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith uh, adventure coming out, House at the Edge of Chaos, which uh, we're quite excited about. That's coming out as part of a box set of new Eighth Doctor and Lucy adventures. Uh, I've got a new novella coming out through tour.com next year which is called hearts of oak which actually i'm going to reveal it was what started life as a big finish pitch for uh some uh with with hartnell era stuff in it and i don't want to say any more about that because actually i think if i told you which one it was uh or any more details about it you might be able to guess some of the twists but i'll be interested to see if people read the novella and if they can guess which which of my big finishes it was a pitch for which got replaced by something completely different um and also i um uh i wrote three episodes of um the chinese adaptation of the tv show humans which is airing quite soon i don't know where it's going to be airing in the rest of the world it's on cctv in china but i think if it you know if you can manage to see it uh, wherever wherever you are i did write three episodes of that and that was a very exciting thing to get to do to get to do big quite big budget quite big scale um primetime sci-fi tv which is the chances to get that to do that are very rare 
particularly in the UK. So it was a really delightful thing to get to do, and I'm really excited for people to see it. Yeah, that sounds fat. We need to have a whole separate conversation I want to have now about the the cultural experience of doing something like that. Oh, yeah, no, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to get you back on something, yeah. maybe an extra. We yeah. can record an extra sometime. Um, the novella, though, that, that that's a very uh, juicy tease there. Can you just say, what was that called again? It's called Hearts of Oak. Hearts of Oak. I'm not sure. It hasn't got a slot yet. It's coming out sometime next year through Tor.com. Awesome. And you can also uh, get adulting for free right now over on iTunes. It's still there. Yep, it's still up. I, and it's also it's pinned to the top of my Twitter if you want to look at it. So if you look up Eddie, at Eddie Robson, it's just it's still pinned there to the top because uh, I like to have something that people could just go and get and don't have to pay for if they want to. That's always great. Now, to finish up, there's always one last ritual I ask our guests to undertake. We've just spent an hour discussing a story you think is underrated, but we all have those fan favorite stories that we think are overrated. So to take us out, I want you to call out a Doctor Who adventure you think has had it too good for too long by completing the sentence, I would rather watch The Gunfighters than... Ooh, I think for this I would go for... Uh Oh, Planet of Evil. Yes. Yeah, no no. <laughs> I love the enjoyment in your voice as you said that. <laughs> no, because it's one where uh, I think Planet of Evil is the classic one where I think if you were very young when you saw it, it's very atmospheric and the sets are very good and it would stick in your mind, but uh it is complete nonsense and it does just but it feels a bit rich to be criticizing a Doctor Who story for being complete nonsense because lots of great Doctor Who stories <laughs> are complete nonsense. But um it does just kind of, it, I, I feel like it really just loses its grip on what the point of it is uh, and it just sort of drifts off. So yeah, I'll go with Planet of Evil. Awesome. Uh, Eddie Robson, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. And listeners, we will talk to you again next month. Goodbye. Bye. Mr. Blue Sky, please tell us why you had to hide.